Section 44 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 65 The Congress of Berlin, Part 2. Lord Salisbury was made foreign minister. He was succeeded in the India office by Mr. Gathorne Hardy, now created Lord Cranbrook. Colonel Stanley, brother of Lord Derby, took the office of Minister of War in Lord Cranbrook's place. Sir Michael Hicks Beach had already become secretary for the colonies on the resignation of Lord Carnarvon. The post of Irish secretary had been given to Mr. James Lowther, an unfortunate appointment as it afterwards proved. Lord Salisbury's first act in the office of foreign secretary was to issue a circular in which he declared that it would be impossible for england to enter a congress which was not free to consider the whole of the provisions of the treaty of san stefano the very day after parliament had adjourned for the easter recess the indian government received orders to send certain of their troops to malta this was a complete surprise to the country we may anticipate matters a little by saying that nothing in the end did more harm to lord beaconsfield's government than his constant practice of taking the country by surprise some of his more vulgar admirers were delighted by these successive sensations they thought it highly agreeable to be ruled by a minister who had always something new to amuse and excite them but the common sense of the country was painfully shaken by these galvanic shocks administered every now and then. The summoning of the troops to Malta became the occasion also for a very serious controversy on a grave constitutional question. It was debated in both houses of Parliament. The opposition contended that the constitutional principle which left it for parliament to fix the number of soldiers the crown might maintain in england was reduced to nothingness if the prime minister could at any moment without even consulting parliament draw what reinforcements he thought fit from the almost limitless resources of india no reasonable person can deny the justice of this argument it only needs to be stated in order to enforce itself the majority then supporting lord beaconsfield were not however much disposed to care about argument or reason they were willing to approve of any step lord beaconsfield might think fit to take prince bismarck had often during these events shown an inclination to exhibit himself in the new attitude of a peaceful mediator he now interposed again and issued invitations for a congress to be held in berlin to discuss the whole contents of the treaty of san stefano after some delay discussion and altercation russia agreed to accept the invitation on the conditions proposed and it was finally resolved that a congress should assemble in berlin on the approaching june thirteenth to this congress it was supposed by most persons that lord salisbury would be sent to represent england much to the surprise of the public lord beaconsfield announced that he himself would attend accompanied by lord salisbury and conduct the negotiations in berlin the event was we believe without precedent never before had an english prime minister left the country whilst parliament was sitting to act 
as the representative of England in a foreign capital. The part he had undertaken to play suited Lord Beaconsfield's love for the picturesque and the theatrical. It seemed a proper culmination to his career that he should take his seat at a great European council chamber and there help in dictating terms of peace to Europe. The temptation was irresistible to a nature so fond of show and state and pomp. Lord Beaconsfield went to Berlin. His journey thither was a sort of triumphal progress. At every great city, almost at every railway station as he passed, crowds turned out, drawn partly by curiosity, partly by admiration, to see the English statesman whose strange and varied career had so long excited the wondering attention of Europe. The Congress was held in the Radzivill Palace, a building with a plain, unpretending exterior, in one of the principal streets of Berlin, and then in the occupation of Prince Bismarck. The prince himself presided, and it is said departed from the usual custom of diplomatic assemblages by opening the proceedings in English. The use of our language was understood to be a kindly and somewhat patronizing deference to the English prime minister, whose knowledge of spoken French was supposed to have fallen somewhat into decay of late years. The Congress discussed the whole or nearly the whole of the questions opened up by the recent war. Greece claimed to be heard there, and after some delay and some difficulty was allowed to plead in her own cause. The Congress of Berlin had to deal with four or five great distinct questions— it had to deal with the condition of the provinces or states nominally under the suzerainty of Turkey. It had then to deal with the populations of alien race and religion actually under Turkey's dominion. It had to take into its consideration the claims of the Greeks, that is, of the kingdom of Greece for extended frontier, and of the Greek populations under Turkey for a different system of rule. Finally, it had to deal with the Turkish possessions in Asia. The great object of most of the statesmen who were concerned in the preparation of the treaty which came of the Congress was to open for the Christian populations of the southeast of Europe a way into gradual self-development and independence. But on the other hand, it must be owned that the object of some of the powers, and especially, we are afraid, of the English government was rather to maintain the Ottoman government than to care for the future of the Christian races. These two influences acting and counteracting on each other produced the Treaty of Berlin. That treaty recognized the complete independence of Romania, of Servia, of Montenegro, subject only to certain stipulations with regard to religious equality in each of these states. To Montenegro it gave a seaport and a slip of territory attached to it. Thus one great object of the mountaineers was accomplished. They were able to reach the sea. The treaty created, north of the Balkans, a state of Bulgaria, a much smaller Bulgaria than that sketched in the Treaty of San Stefano. Bulgaria was to be a self-governing state tributary to the Sultan and owning his suzerainty but in other respects practically independent. It was to be governed by a prince 
whom the population were to elect with the assent of the great powers and the confirmation of the sultan it was stipulated that no member of any reigning dynasty of the great european powers should be eligible as a candidate south of the balkans the treaty created another and different kind of state under the name of eastern rumelia that state was to remain under the direct political and military authority of the sultan but it was to have as its interior condition a sort of administrative autonomy as the favourite diplomatic phrase then was east rumelia was to be ruled by a christian governor and there was a stipulation that the sultan should not employ any irregular troops such as the circassians and the bashi bazooks in the garrisons of the frontier the european powers were to arrange in concert with the port for the organization of this new state as regards greece it was arranged that the sultan and the king of the hellenes were to come to some understanding for a modification of the greek frontier and that if they could not arrange this between themselves the great powers were to have the right of offering that is to say in plain words of insisting on their mediation the sultan also undertook scrupulously to apply to crete the organic law of eighteen sixty eight bosnia and herzegovina were to be occupied and administered by austria rumania undertook or in other words was compelled to undertake to return to russia that portion of bessarabian territory which had been detached from russia by the treaty of paris rumania was to receive in compensation some islands forming the delta of the danube and a portion of dobrushka as regarded asia the port was to cede to russia ardahan kars and batum with its great port on the black sea the treaty of berlin gave rise to keen and adverse criticism much complaint was made of the curious arrangement which divided the bulgarian populations into two separate states under wholly different systems of government this it was said is only the example of the congress of paris over again it is just such another futile attempt as that which was made to keep the danubian principalities separate from each other in the hope of thereby diminishing the influence of russia and securing greater influence for turkey the simple and natural arrangement it was urged would have been to unite the whole of these populations at once under one form of government to that it was insisted they must come in the end and the interval of separation is only more likely to be successfully employed by russia in spreading her influence because each division of the population is so small as to be unable to offer any effective resistance to her advances on the other hand it was argued by the supporters of the treaty that the bulgarian question was not so simple and straightforward as might have been supposed that there was a considerable variety of races of religions and of interests enclosed in what some people chose to call bulgaria and that no better arrangement could be found than to keep one portion still under the protection of the port while allowing to the other something that might almost be styled independence the arrangement which gave bosnia and herzegovina to the occupation of austria became afterwards the subject of sharp controversy the prime minister himself at a later day actually declared that this step was taken in order to put another power not russia on the high road to constantinople if the succession to the port should ever become vacant on the other hand 
austrian statesmen themselves denied that any such intention was in the mind of the emperor of austria they insisted that the occupation was accepted by austria out of no feeling of individual advantage but on the contrary at much inconvenience and some sacrifice and solely in the interest of the common peace of europe very bitter indeed was the controversy provoked by the surrender to russia of the bessarabian territory taken from her at the time of the crimean war rumania the gallant and spirited little state which had thriven surprisingly under her new system of government was thus plundered in order to satisfy russia's self-love russia had set her heart upon recovering every single one of the advantages real or only nominal which she had been compelled to sacrifice at the close of the crimean war this was the last remnant of the victory obtained over her at so much cost and after such a struggle by the combined powers of the west now she had regained everything the black sea was open to her war vessels and its shores to her arsenals the last slight trace of crimean humiliation was effaced in the restoration of the territory of bessarabia profound disappointment was caused among many european populations as well as among the greeks themselves by the arrangements for the rectification of the greek frontier the impression left in the minds of the greek delegates was that the influence of the english ministers had in every instance been given in favour of turkey and against the claims of greece thus speaking roughly it may be said that the effect of the congress of berlin on the mind of europe was to make the christian populations of the south-east believe that their friend was russia and their enemies were england and turkey to make the greeks believe that france was their especial friend and that england was their enemy and to create an uncomfortable impression everywhere that the whole congress was a pre-arranged business a transaction with a foregone conclusion a dramatic performance carefully rehearsed before in all its details and merely enacted as a pageant on the berlin stage the latter impression was converted into a conviction by certain subsequent revelations it came out that lord beaconsfield and lord salisbury had been entering into secret engagements both with russia and with turkey the secret engagement with russia was the occasion of a good deal of scandal the secret engagement was prematurely divulged by the heedlessness or the treachery of a person who had been called in at a small temporary rate of pay to assist in copying dispatches in the foreign office the authenticity of his revelation was denied in the first instance with what appeared to be genuine earnestness but it came out that the denial was a mere quibble as to the meaning of the word authentic the version of the agreement thus prematurely published by the globe a london evening paper was to all intents and purposes perfectly genuine the secret treaty proved to be almost exactly as it had been described in advance it was signed at the foreign office on may thirtieth some days before prince bismarck issued his invitation to the congress it was a memorandum determining the points on which an understanding had been come to between russia and great britain and a mutual engagement for the english and russian plenipotentiaries at the congress it bound england to put up with the handing back of bessarabia and the cession of the port of batum it conceded 
all the points in advance which the english people believed that their plenipotentiaries had been making brave struggles for at berlin lord beaconsfield had not then frightened russia into accepting the congress on his terms the call of the indian troops to malta had not done the business nor the reserves nor the vote of the six millions russia had gone into the congress because lord salisbury had made a secret engagement with her that she should have what she specially wanted the congress was only a piece of pompous and empty ceremonial another secret engagement was that entered into with turkey the english government undertook to guarantee to turkey her asiatic possessions against all invasion on condition that turkey handed over to england the island of cyprus for her occupation lord beaconsfield afterwards explained that cyprus was to be used as a place of arms in other words england had now formally pledged herself to defend and secure turkey against all invasion or aggression and occupied cyprus in order to have a more effectual vantage ground from which to carry on this project the difference therefore between the policy of the conservative government and the policy of the liberals was now thrown into the strongest possible relief mr gladstone and those who thought with him had always made it a principle of their policy that england had no special and separate interest in maintaining the independence of turkey lord beaconsfield now declared it to be the cardinal principle of his policy that england specially england above all was concerned to maintain the integrity and the independence of the turkish empire that in fact the security of turkey was as much part of the duty of english statesmanship as the security of the channel islands or of malta for the moment the policy of lord beaconsfield seemed to be entirely in the ascendant his return home was celebrated with pomp and circumstance befitting the temperament of the statesman if not indeed quite becoming of such an occasion the prime minister got a great public reception in london crowds awaited him at the railway station which was gaudily decorated and bedizened for the occasion he made a conquering hero's progress through the streets arrived at the foreign office he addressed from the windows an excited and tumultuous crowd and he proclaimed in words which became memorable that he had brought back peace with honour this so far as human eye can yet see was the climax of that strange career from the day when mr disraeli first addressed the electors of wickham from the day when his first speech was hooted and laughed at in the house of commons up to this triumphal reception in the streets of london and this oration from the windows of the foreign office what a distance he had traversed years of struggle against what seemed almost insurmountable difficulties years of steady faith in himself undisturbed by almost universal ridicule years of rise and fall of action and reaction of success and disaster had conducted him appropriately to this climax at this moment he was probably the most conspicuous public man in the world unless we make one single exception in favour of prince bismarck he had attained to a position of almost unrivalled popularity in england not even in his most successful days was lord palmerston ever pursued by such a clamour of noisy public acclamation 
the head of the english prime minister might well have been turned as he stood at the window of the foreign office and addressed his few oracular words to the crowd and heard the wild cheering which followed and knew that all the world had its eyes then fixed on that single figure he ought to have followed classic advice and sacrificed at that moment his dearest possession to the gods no man without sacrifice could buy the lease of such a position and the endurance of such a success meanwhile so far as could be judged by external symptoms and in the metropolis mr gladstone and his followers were down to their lowest depth their very zero of unpopularity the london morning newspapers with the one conspicuous exception of the daily news were entirely on the side of lord beaconsfield indeed with the exception of the daily news the spectator and the echo there were no metropolitan papers of any literary name no papers lying on club tables which had not declared themselves emphatically in support of lord beaconsfield against mr gladstone the cheap weekly papers which were read by hundreds of thousands of the working population were not known to the calculations of society nor did society concern itself much about the public opinion of the provinces in the midland counties and still more especially in the north of england the condition of public feeling was somewhat different from that of london in the provinces men examined more coolly the political conditions they were not carried away by the gossip of the house of commons and the clubs and the influence of that which in london is called society in the provinces on the whole liberalism still remained popular mr gladstone would still have been sure of the cheers of a great provincial meeting but there came a day in london when passing with his wife through one of the streets he was compelled to seek the shelter of a friendly hall door in order to escape from the threatening demonstrations of a little mob of patriots boisterously returning from a jingo carnival End of section 44